Right. Um, good morning. It's good to be with you all here. We're in this 17th Sunday, if you've all been keeping track of 24 in ordinary time. Again, the wonderful thing we've tried to do in this time where we're trying to see how the life, the death, and the salvation of Christ work in all times and all places is to focus in here on this Exodus story and see how God's salvation worked at a particular time in a particular place with people who are just like us. After having done 15 Sundays in Exodus, we've now arrived at the moment of the giving of the law here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And I feel like the heart of this particular sermon is going to be found in listening to and meditating on those Ten Commandments we all just read together, allowing maybe them to read us. Pastor Jeff helped me find a tool, actually, that's going to be in the back this morning. If you all have a few minutes to work through just a couple of those questions and hear how the Ten Commandments have been present in your life. But before we do that, I want to frame the significance of your response to those Ten Commandments uh, with a movie, three questions, and a little bit of a refresh on where we are here in the Exodus narrative. The movie I want to talk about this morning is Gladiator. I had to think of if you're out there somewhere in cyberspace, Leo, just because we've talked about Ridley Scott, who directed the film a lot. Um, and I actually also thought this morning, too, because uh, Ridley Scott, I guess, just confirmed there's going to be a sequel to Gladiator, um, that maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm relevant. No. Jeff does not think I'm relevant. But there is. Um, but the movie Gladiator, in, in the original film, in the 2000 film, the protagonist is Maximus Decimus Meridius. And he's a Roman general of the second century. And at the, at the very beginning of the film, he, you see him conquer the last of, enemy, of the enemies of Rome. And he's chosen by the current emperor at that time, Marcus Aurelius, to be his successor to cleanse Rome of corruption. The antagonist of Gladiator is Commodus, who's the amoral, ambitious son of Marcus Aurelius, who kills his father and tries to kill Maximus so that he can seize the throne for himself. For me, the film is this interesting study in contrast between the apparent and the actual identities of these two men, Maximus and Commodus. Maybe the first question then that you'd want to ask me or I want to answer this morning is what in the world is identity? Identity is something that for all of us kind of remains the same. Whether you dress me up in different clothing or I'm in a different place or with a different people or at different times in my life, you'd all still call me Cody. If I ate lasagna one day and the next day I ate a taco, you wouldn't call me Pastor Taco, you'd still call me Pastor Cody. There's something about my name like my identity that seems to not change even though Every moment, every hour changes for us. But then the second question that we might want to ask is, is there a point? Is there a point at which our circumstances can change our identity? My answer, of course, would be say, no, that's silly. That couldn't ever happen. But Gladiator wants to explore this question in the extremes. Because at the beginning of the film, both Maximus and Commodus have these drastic changes to their lives. 
Maybe the question that the film is trying to ask throughout the whole time is, has their identity changed with their changed circumstances? Commodus has become the emperor, and you could argue, at least in the world at that time, there were only two kinds of people. There was the emperor and everyone else. But Commodus doesn't seem all that different, even though he has become the emperor. He still seems to be plagued by his envy, his lust, and his vanity, which will be his undoing. While he seems like he should be the most powerful and the most free person alive at that time in history, he still seems dominated by the very things that held him captive from the beginning. And maybe all of you could say, called it, I knew that was going to be the case. But maybe the more interesting question is Maximus. Something like Job loses his position, the people around him, his land, and his family everything that identifies him with his former life. He eventually falls into slavery after the attempt to kill him fails, and he's forced to compete as a gladiator and matches to his death to the entertainment of strangers. Does Maximus, the loyal, the just, the courageous, the dedicated general of Rome, disappear after everything in his life has been stripped from him, after he's been humiliated and enslaved, Or will his grief and his fury just consume him until he trades his identity for the sole purpose of killing the person who wronged him? You know, that question that I feel like Gladiator asks throughout the film, whether our identity persists in the midst of earth-shattering change or adversity, I feel like it resonates with me. I've been called by God, many of you have, adopted as a son, given this new identity in Christ. And it's given me victory, it's given me freedom over all the things that I used to be. But my identity in Christ doesn't make me immune to sin. Like Maximus, what a struggle I have when the circumstances of my life are mismatched to the identity that I feel like I have in Christ. Sin could never stop or remove that identity from me. But its greatest tool to be able to re-enslave us is to create pressure points on the places that I have of fear or of grief or of loneliness to echo back my pain in my life so that I forget, I reject, I deny that identity. Which then leaves me with the third and final question in thinking about this morning. Is there anything we can do to confirm and strengthen that free, that God-given identity that we have in Christ, so that when we come into those moments that really challenge us and challenge that identity, we can move through them. God can't allow us to overcome them. And with that, I think it's good to turn to Exodus 20. In the passage that we read for this morning, just Prior and leading up to it, the Israelites have been in the wilderness journeying through, and they're now at Mount Sinai. As you all know, as the story has gone here, God in his faithfulness covenanted with Abraham and his descendants in this plan to undo the corrupting influence of sin and death on God's good creation. And we've seen in this exodus narrative how there's been kind of a back and forth between God and sin. Because as God comes up with this plan to undo sin, then sin then goes ahead with the plan to stop 
to stop God's plan um, through Egypt, through an enslaving empire, to hold God's people and God's plan captive there. But God answers that attempted captivity in the ten plagues. And like hammer blows falling on a chain, the plagues set God's people free from bondage. But then as we saw, sin drives the Egyptians mad, even as the Israelites are trying to leave Egypt. In this all an attempt by sin to wipe out the Israelites, Egypt, and everyone before they can leave. But God again counters sin in this by leading the Israelites up to the very edge of death, and then finally imparting the Red Sea, taking them through death to life on the other side. The miracle at the Red Sea is, is that even the mightiest human empire, bent as much as it could be on opposing the will of God, could not stop God's redemption of his people. But then we come to the middle of chapter 15. Have you ever been at that moment, and you've been watching, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of books that do this, I especially can think of some films that come to mind, where you feel like you've reached the end, it feels like the heroes have gotten, you know, they've, they've done, they've dealt with whatever their adversary was, and you can just sort of feel everybody's wrapping up, if you're at the movie theater, everybody's kind of getting ready to go, and then all of a sudden the score changes, and there's like some sort of dark, ominous element. And you realize, as the heroes do at that time, that they had just defeated like a pawn or a henchman. And there's like a larger scheme, and now they're going to have to fight an even bigger enemy. And if you're like me, you're like, oh man, this is actually now going to be another hour. Oh gosh, can I last? Well, that plot point, that's ripped off from Exodus 15. Israel left Egypt. They left their human captors. But as they did so, on their way to the promised land, they entered onto sin's home field turf. The crazy thing about all of Egypt's false gods, the gods of order, is that they're supposed to protect them from the even stronger gods, the greater forces that exist out in the wilderness, the forces of chaos and of death. Israel was liberated from the most powerful civilization in the world at that time, only to walk into the very place that every empire no matter how powerful, was afraid to go. Here sin has power not just over the Israelites' bodies, but over their minds and over their hearts. Here sin is able to make their freedom seem like slavery. Here sin is able to turn their obedience into rebellion. Here sin is able to make them long to be back in captivity in Egypt. But at this moment, they aren't left alone in this face-to-face -face confrontation with sin. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, is still with them. And in Egypt, God dealt with the sinful enslaving empire through the ten plagues one by one, blow by blow. And here, in the wilderness, God takes them to a mountain, to a place of power in the wilderness, to do yet another liberating miracle. Here God deals with sin and death, now unmasked and exposed as they are in the wilderness, through the Ten Commandments. And one by one, each one of these commandments deals a crushing blow to the temptations, to the snares, and to the fears that sin and death would use to re-enslave the Israelites. 
These Ten Commandments give to Israel an identity that's a shield and a fortress that endures through ups and downs, through highs and lows, through the good and through the bad. It's an identity that's not based on who they are today, tomorrow, or the next day, but on who God is always. And sin can't change that. The commandments are the word that God speaks in eternally naming and renaming that identity in our hearts and in our minds. We know after this moment that once these commandments, once this law, once this teaching, once these words are given, sin can send famine and hunger. It can send drought and thirst and plague and disease to Israel. But if Israel will hear and obey, God's command not to have any other gods. They won't fall into that vain temptation of appeasing whatever local god of the harvest or of the rain or quick fix solution. All of that temptation has been robbed of its power to enslave them. Because the commandment is also, as John Wesley recognized, a promise that God is our entire provision, the one in whom we can put our complete trust and patience. Sin could send stress and worry and anxiety at Israel to undermine their faith, but if Israel will hear God's command not to make for themselves an idol, then the temptation to seek comfort or peace in something that I can finger, something that's made of wood or stone, or I guess I don't have my phone up here, or even of flesh and blood, that temptation is robbed of its power to enslave me. Because God alone is able and promises to be the peace and the comfort to all of us and that the world cannot give us. Sin could send a million family gatherings, community events, holidays, home repairs, wagon troubles, livestock issues, for Israel to just lose themselves in constant distraction and activity. But if Israel will hear and obey God's commands of Sabbath, then that temptation to exchange their humanity for stimulation and busyness is robbed of its power to enslave them. Instead, they receive the promise of the Lord who is their rest and who is at the center of the universe and not us. Sin could send arguments and insults, neglect and resentment to try to fracture all their relationships, to break up Israel. But if Israel listens to the command to honor one's parents, this most fundamental creaturely relationship that often carries with it the deepest wounds, the no relationship or person, no matter how complicated or seemingly lost or troubled, is beyond the hope of redemption or repair or respect. The temptation to think that we're alone or unworthy of love or unforgivable or misunderstood is robbed of its power to enslave us. Sin might try to send anger or lust or um, black to unravel Israel. But if, it will, if Israel will listen and obey to God's command to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, or to not lie, they will experience the power of a God who gives justice, who multiplies love and intimacy through commitment, who upholds the weak and the poor, who is ultimately always faithful. What I don't want you to miss in these commandments being given at Sinai is how in these commandments God shares with Israel the same extraordinary power that was at work in Egypt, this incredible spiritual power over 
sin. Each one of these Ten Commandments, like the Ten Plagues, strikes a blow against sin's power to try to re-enslave us, even after we've been set free in Christ. God gives the freedom ultimately to us, but the commandments end up being a part of that gift, this joyful way that we participate within the freedom God gives us to help sustain and allow God to perfect it in us. The, um, the movie Gladiator, kind of, if you've ever seen it, ends the way that everyone would expect it to. Maximus, who's the enslaved gladiator, ends up having to fight in the face Commodus, the sham emperor, to the death. For me, the, the remarkable thing or the thing that I would pull from the movie is that along this sort of arc of vengeance that Maximus is on, he begins to remember who he is. While he's in appearance a slave, he is not so in his identity. He's not held captive to his grief or his anger or his rage. He's a man who is fundamentally de defined in life by his loyalty to those who he serves, his justice in the face of wrong, protection of the weak, and courage in the face of death. And I, I love the image. I guess they could have ended the film. It's like, he, you know, Commodus, they fight to the death. Commodus dies. He's dying of, of a mortal wound. But the final image that you're left with of Maximus as he's staggering under this is him to say that he wants his men to be set free for the corrupting power of the emperor to be dissolved and for the, drone that for the dream that was Rome to be realized. And it's a wonderful picture in that moment because this man who is condemned to live his life as a slave, you end up seeing is more free than the emperor. And he uses his freedom to set others free. It's just an incredible picture. In the midst of his tremendous loss, his grief, his death, the identity that Maximus breathed, that he slept, that he ate for so many years, the valor, the honor, the courage, won out over an identity of rage, bitterness, and anger. And again, in that same way, in the contrast that the film paints between Maximus and Commodus, Commodus dies the very way that he rules, which is the same way that he also had lived all those years prior. Always reminds me of that phrase, you play like you practice. You know, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, God gives us, as we have said before, a freedom. God is the one who alone is able to save us. And we have this amazing identity in Christ. The commandments don't have the power in themselves to free us or to change us. But if we allow God to set us free, to save us, and if we receive the gift of these commandments, not as lifeless obligations, but as promises to help us remain in God's love, in his freedom, then God may, make them, may use them to help make us whole and breathe ever new life daily in us. If you've ever taken a membership class at Cordova, you know that there's kind of four major pillars we'll talk about in the membership class. We'll talk about what we believe, and that's centered on the Apostles' Creed. We'll talk about how we worship or how we encounter God, and that will usually, we'll talk about the, the table, the, the sacraments here. We'll talk about what we, uh, how we live or the moral life. And it's in that one you'll see the Ten Commandments and then how we pray, which will be at the Lord's Prayer. There's something really significant in how we live. That's a cornerstone foundation in being a disciple 
in being a believer in Christ. And so I'd encourage you as you just think about that and think about these Ten Commandments, which are kind of a summation of that. Listen to how each of them speak to you. Listen to how they hit you or strike you this morning. Which ones of these Ten Commandments have you allowed to take shape in you? Have you worshipped the Lord alone? Have you been able to resist those idols that we have a tendency to finger for comfort? Do you feel like you've been able to use the Lord's name to bless and not curse others? His name to confirm truth and love and grace? Have you been able to rest from your work? Have you allowed others to rest from their work? Have you been able to honor your parents? And have you been able to receive honor from your children? Have you been able to resist the temptation to murder or adultery or theft and lying? Where are the places that you feel tempted otherwise, and how have you been delivered? Have you coveted anything? We said I'd like you to. There's a more extensive way to do this, and it's available in the back here, where Pastor Jeff may lead us uh, in a brief, brief moment of reflection here. And I'd encourage you, I don't think that I went too long here this morning, I'd encourage you, if you have an extra minute or two, just to allow those Ten Commandments in the Spirit, uh, the convicting Spirit of God, to do that work in us. And do it in a spirit of thankfulness. That these commandments are all given to help us live a life that's pleasing to God through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And if in that self-examination you come up with anything that you'd like to to talk about or be relieved of or confess, know always that Pastor Jeff or I or even a trusted friend can hear that admission and affirm the reality of Christ's forgiveness. There's something really empowering um, about living the moral life and just recognizing and naming that. And finally, I guess, just as we reflect here, I encourage you to reflect on the Ten Commandments this morning. I'd also encourage you to remember that Christ came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And indeed, that we come to this table in a commandment of the Lord himself. That he commands us to do this in remembrance of him as often as we get together, as we gather. And part of the reason is that it's because, just like the Ten Commandments, obeying what the Lord asks of us helps to form us in the identity and keep us in that identity that he gives us. And being able to recognize and to surrender to God's love here and responding with our own act of love, he continues to help make us his church, his body, his mission here in the world. So this morning, I just remind you that you're called, you're urged, you're commanded even to come to this table to receive these elements in joy and in thankfulness. My hope and my prayer that you're made in your obedience to the likeness and conform to the image of the Son. Shall we pray together? Lord, our God, we're grateful here as we've arrived at this um, wonderful moment of the giving of the law at Sinai, the giving of these Ten Commandments, just to be able to pause, to allow them to hit us, to receive in our minds those places where in the gift of them you have helped us so often in our weakness find ways of sustaining our freedom. We ask you ever more greatly, Lord, to allow those words to speak in us, to be our words, to be our thoughts, to be our desires, to be our actions. Allow us, Lord, to live 
and perfect obedience as your son did through life even unto death to life again. I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to receive this table to be able to come here and just have ever more, more deeply that identity which is yours and yours alone to give. We pray this all in your son's name.